I do target my talk to engage with girls who might not consider careers in science, but also I want to give them a sort of a wide range of options. So science might not be for them and that's fine, but know that there's something out there for them and that they don't have to narrow down their field of view because they think, oh, women go into these subjects. Women can go into any subjects and thrive. This is the Suffrage Science Podcast, how women are changing science. Brought to you by the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences. I'm Kat Arney, and over the coming series, we'll be exploring the journeys of women in science, reflecting on progress we've made and the challenges still to be addressed through conversations with an incredible group of women scientific leaders who've all received one of the Suffrage Science Awards over the past 10 years. We're hearing from inspirational figures from the world of science, like former Chief Medical Officer Sally Davis, computing legend Wendy Hall, and climate scientist Tamsin Edwards. So make sure you've subscribed to the Suffrage Science Podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss a single episode. This time, I sat down for a chat with Dr Maggie Adairin-Pocock, one of the leading figures in UK space science and presenter of the iconic Sky at Night TV programme and CBB's Stargazing. Maggie was one of the inaugural awardees of the Suffrage Science Engineering and Physical Sciences Awards in 2013, in recognition not only of her scientific work, but her passion for science communication, education and inclusion. Her work in science education was recognised in the 2009 New Year Honours when she was awarded an MBE and last year she won the Institute of Physics William Thompson Lord Kelvin Medal and Prize for Public Engagement in Physics. Maggie is a talented public speaker and has delivered lectures all over the place, from the Houses of Parliament to the Women's Institute and the Royal Institution and she was ranked the sixth most influential Black Britain by Powerlist. As a physicist... She's helped to develop aircraft missile warning systems for the Ministry of Defence and worked on the spectrograph for the Gemini Space Telescope in Chile and satellites designed to measure wind speed to help understand climate change. Yet, all the while, as I discovered when we started talking, her gaze has been fixed firmly on the stars. It's funny, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to get out into space, which sounds a bit odd, but all my life I've been sort of fascinated by what's out there. And to my mind, I think it started with the moon landings because I was born in 1968. In 1969, the moon landings happened. And although I was too young to remember them, uh, story goes that I was taking my first small steps as Neil Armstrong was taking his giant leap. So I don't remember the moon landings, but I think they definitely had a profound effect on me because growing up, I could hear about people going, to the moon. I could look out of the window and see the moon. And so I thought, yes, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to get out there. And then in terms of actually moving towards becoming a scientist, so what were the next steps that you took there? It started with the moon landings. Things like the clangers played a very important role. And these sort of little creatures that live out in a planet in space. But for me, I guess... The stumbling block is when I actually went to school uh, because all my life um, I had been fascinated by space and science and all of that. But I have dyslexia. It's funny, I used to say I just suffer from dyslexia, but I don't see it as suffering anymore. (laughs) So I have dyslexia. And of course, when you first go to school, it's all about reading and writing. So I went to school and I was put in the remedial class. And uh, growing up in sort of a a Nigerian family, my father always brought me up, you know, education is so important, you know, uh, 
before I went to school, my father was saying, so what college of Oxford are you going to go to? So he set the bar pretty high. And so going into school, it felt I felt like a total failure because I wasn't progressing. I felt you put in the back of the class with the safety scissors and the glue. So it just didn't add up. But I was lucky that I was one day sitting in a science class and the teacher asked a question and I put my hand up and I was the only one with my hand up and the only one that got the question right. And it's funny, moments like that really just sort of give you confidence because you think, okay, maybe I'm not bad at everything. Maybe there is a role for me here. And so through that, I started to sort of engage a little more. But the other challenge is I went to 13 different schools when I was growing up. So (laughs) it's because my parents split up when I was about four years old. And sometimes I was with my mum, sometimes I was with my dad so it meant I moved around a lot but I think things like this you can sometimes use it to your advantage and I remember going to one school and they asked me sort of well what group should I be in you know uh, upper middle or lower and I'd worked out from you know, my many uh, treks through schools that it's much easier to go down than it is to go up so I lied and said I should be in the upper street <laughs> So an opportunist at work. But they put me in the upper stream. But I knew I had to work really hard to stay there. And so with lots of support from teachers and family, I was able to stay there. And that sort of led to me getting into sort of education and then going on to university. And in terms of thinking about a career in science, and one of the things we talk about a lot trying to get women and girls into science is that if you can see women who are scientists, see women who are doing these things, it sort of thinks, oh, I can see myself there, I can do that. But then again, as for you being a, a black woman going into science, you know, did you did you feel that science was something that was for someone like you? It's quite interesting because I think there were different types of people. So one of my role models growing up was Lieutenant Yohora. So, oh yeah. <laughs> sort of a fictional character. <laughs> but an amazing woman. And so um, and I got to meet her uh, sort of a, um, a few years ago, which sort of blew my mind. <laughs> wow. And so um, I think because of all my life, I've dreamt about getting into space. It's been the driving force throughout my life. And so not having uh, many role models in science didn't really put me off. Also, I think I'm quite stubborn. And the worst thing someone can say to me is, oh, you can't do that. So, oh, yeah, can't I? Uh, bring it on. So, Watch so, me. Yes, yes. And it's quite interesting because my father um, wanted, I've got um, three siblings. So I'm one of four girls. And my father really wanted a boy. So again, it brought out that, oh, 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 I'll be as good as any boy. Oh. <laughs> so, and so I think being in a sort of a, a male-dominated environment wasn't going to put me off. I had a love and passion for science. And I think things like that can transcend um, uh, sort of any, any challenges you face on the way. And in terms of the people who've helped you along the way, have you benefited from particular mentors or, or support, maybe from expected or perhaps slightly unexpected places? Uh, yes, I think I have. There have been all sorts of people who have sort of uh, had an impact on my life. First of all, uh, my father, because um, he was very much into science. He wanted to come to the UK and study medicine, but he never really got the opportunity. So he was sort of quite science oriented. And um, when I did sort of make the breakout, sort of was in the top group, would actually study science together and sort of go to the library as we did in those days and get books. So he was a sort of a major impact. And also he used to tell me, oh, you have some challenges, but even if you have these challenges, you can do it. It might take you longer, but you can get there in the end. And I think for, for many kids, you know, sort of these things you know, pass over our heads. But um, uh, as a child, I sort of took that on board. And yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe having a crazy dream isn't so crazy. 
My mum was another sort of very strong character in my life. And she showed me sort of resilience and uh, sort of, you know, how to pick yourself up when things go wrong. And these are sort of the key things that I, I sort of continue using today. On the sort of outside the family, actually, sorry, I've got um, sort of three wonderful sisters as well. Um, my sister Sue is an actress. And it's, I think that sort of has some of the influence on what I do today. And my sister Hal, she's the person I aspire to be. And she introduced me to science fiction stories. And I, I found reading quite hard. But she tell me the stories. And I think, oh, that's amazing. I, I want to read that. So she gave me the reason to read. <laughs> but then outside the family... There have been all sorts of um, amazing people, teachers at school who gave me extra lessons. Uh, one of the challenges, I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until I was about 45. I didn't know what the challenge was. I didn't know what the problem was. But lots of teachers sort of gave me extra help and sort of extra support and you know, after school and things like that. So, yes, there has been a lot of people that have helped. So you went on to do physics and mechanical engineering and work at Imperial. So tell me a bit about that time of your life, sort of getting into research and establishing yourself as a, a scientist in this, I'm going to say it, probably quite male-dominated field. <laughs> yes. And it was, so I remember I used to love Imperial College, which is where I studied. Because uh, as a child, I used to go to the Science Museum and I used to go into sort of um, the Hall of um, Rockets and stuff like that. So, oh my goodness. And then I'd look next door and you know, that's where the clever people go. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to go somewhere like that? And so when I got accepted into Imperial, I was so excited. But um, the cohort uh, for the first year in physics was uh, of the order of about 200 people but I think of that 200 only five of us were girls so we were it was sort of, yeah, definitely started off male dominated and I think only uh, two of us were black but um, it's funny although I might be sort of a, the only one of a kind so only black woman in this cohort I don't think it worried me I just wanted to I wanted to study the science and I think that's the power of having a crazy goal in mind my sister did physics at Imperial and there was, there was always that joke, you know, if you were a woman among all these men, it's like, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> That's a lovely one. And it's funny because I met my husband at Imperial. Well, it can't be that odd then. <laughs> Because I think when I was there, the ratio was uh, eight to one uh, men wow. to women. That's before they got the medical school. So, yes. <laughs> Definitely. And then you, you've gone from being a researcher to now moving more towards doing media work and being a broadcaster. And incredibly, you know, being a presenter on the sky at night, which is just one of the flagship science programmes, certainly flagship space programme. So how did you get how did you get there and, and how did you kind of take on that mantle? It was a long sort of process. One of the things that I found was I was um, I'd gone you know through university. I sort of come out the other end, worked in universities, and then sort of gone out into industry. And I realised that um, I was finding it very hard to recruit people into my industry. So I was working in space science, and I always thought you know space science is a pretty good title. You know, I'm a space scientist. Yeah, step aside. Yeah, space Next is to the cool. Brain, so, yeah. No. <laughs> And so what I couldn't understand was why more people weren't coming into these subjects, and especially girls, because as uh, sort of people who work in STEM can get paid very well. It's a secure job. But I think it felt as if many girls were missing out on this. So I decided I'd sort of start going out to schools and speaking to kids and sort of effectively trying to sell it, because I think to me it's to a certain extent, a PR job. And the problem is awareness. People aren't aware what we do as scientists. And we make an impact. We sort of, we can 
change the world. And also they didn't see the relevance when you're sitting in the classroom sort of doing trigonometry. It's hard to think that you know, that might get sort of a, a rover to Mars. So let's trying to show the relevance, try and showing some role models, some fantastic women who've done amazing things and sort of just trying to recruit the next generation. So it started with that. And I got some funding from an organisation now called the STFC, Science and Technology Facilities Council. And so with that, I started going out to schools and it was very slow going at first. I, I wrote to lots of educational authorities saying, hello, my name's Maggie. I'd love to come to your school. And, so, and I got no replies. <laughs> but uh, eventually I got into a few schools and it sort of escalated from there. And so um, what, because I was doing sort of a science communication, um, I was working with some people at UCL. And one day someone suggested that I do a news programme. She couldn't make it. She'd been invited onto a news programme. And she asked me if I'd like to go instead. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, great. And then I thought about it. What am I going to talk about? You know, <laughs> The weight of it sets in. Uh, so I started doing that. And what I decided I wanted to do is if I did a news programme, I wanted to do some sort of live demos because that's what I do when I go out to schools. I sort of uh, I like the hands on science. So I wanted to do demonstrations to sort of uh, bring to life the things I was talking about. And so it's that's uh, where my first television appearances started. And then it sort of escalated from there. And uh, Patrick Moore, my predecessor on Sky at Night, he was the longest serving television presenter. Uh, so he's presented the same programme for 57 years years. I must admit, when I stepped into his shoes, um, I think I was a rabbit in the headlights, but it was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, those are big, big shoes to fill. And how did it feel the, the first one? Like, I've really got to prove myself. Yes. One of my challenges, because I have dyslexia, um, if you get a sort of a, a script or sort of text and things like that, I find it hard to memorise. So I have to sort of magify, that's what I call it, magify everything. And so it was sort of a rabbit in the headlights and it was sort of a, quite daunting. And there was some um, sort of feedback from the press. Oh, yes, the BBC just being politically correct. And that was disappointing because I was sort of a, a highly qualified. Um, I'd done lots of science communication. So uh, I think... I, I could be considered for the role just in my own right. And to see me just as sort of, oh, well, you know, a, a slot in because I'm black was disappointing. But I, I think I've uh, proved the naysayers wrong. And um, uh, there might still be a few people out there saying, yeah, you know, she shouldn't be there. But I think the majority of people see me as sort of part of the programme now. Yeah, you're, you're on the uh, trajectory to national treasure, I think, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been the aspiration. <laughs> Go to space and national treasure, you know. <laughs> But, you know, you are so enthusiastic. You're so passionate. It's it's just a joy to talk to you. But I do want to know, like, along the way, have there been any particularly challenging moments where you're like, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure I'm the person for this. How, how's that felt along the way? Yes, uh, because it's quite interesting. I keep on mentioning the dyslexia, but I think dyslexics are used to falling down, sort of flat in the mud and things going wrong. That's why they're often entrepreneurs and they sort of go into that line of work because they can sort of, they're used to sort of the challenges and the failures and they're look, are used to finding ways around things. And so, yes, there's been a number of times where things haven't gone according to plan. But I think the key to being successful isn't not failing, but it's working out how to handle the failure and how to pick yourself up afterwards and sort of, you know, brush off the mud and sort of lament for a while and then sort of go on and find another route. And there were a few times where I was sitting on, a, let's say, a breakfast sofa. I remember one distinctly when I was talking about the Higgs boson, which is quite far off my field. And I remember listening to the introduction and they gave the introduction. I was thinking, 
okay, that's about all I know about this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what the spoilers. Can I add? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't say that. I was going to use that. <laughs> so, and so in situations like that, it's, you, you learn from that. Okay, yeah, don't go too far off piste. I can talk about science in general, but this was quite specific. And so there's been a few moments like that. We're thinking, okay. <laughs> and, but it's, I think the key is learning. And I also think that having a sort of a big aspiration, like getting into space or uh, what I say is reaching for the stars, no matter what your stars are, I think that really helps because it means that you, you fall over, but you can still see the goal up there. So you get up, brush yourself off and find a way around. <laughs> we'll come back to Maggie soon. But now it's time to hear a few words of advice from another Suffrage Science awardee who picked up her award this year, space scientist Gaty Hussain. One of the best pieces of advice I received was very early on in my career, shortly after I'd finished my PhD. I was giving a presentation and afterwards, one of my mentors, Andrea Dupree, pointed out that I had a tendency to apologise a lot during my talk and minimise my own results. Getting that bit of feedback allowed me to really reevaluate what impression I wanted to leave and what I was trying to achieve with the talks that I was giving. I've always been very grateful for that feedback. If you're enjoying this series of the Suffrage Science Podcast, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you're following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Now, let's return to our conversation with Maggie Adair in Pocock. I asked her to cast her mind back to 2013 and how it felt to be nominated for a Suffrage Science Award. It felt amazing because I'd been working, sort of doing outreach and getting out there. But it's just always nice that sort of someone is aware of what you're doing. I do it because I love it. And going out and speaking to kids just gives me such joy. Uh, I like to talk about science. I get very excited about science. Uh, and as interacting with kids, they see things from a different perspective, which I think really helps with the science I do, because you, you take things for granted and they sort of bring you back down to earth. So I was doing something I loved. And so to get such recognition for it was sort of quite phenomenal. And a big part of the scheme is then you choose someone to hand your jewellery onto. Unfortunately, you don't get to keep these beautiful pieces. So um, with much reluctance, who who did you hand yours onto? Uh, so uh, um, I handed mine on to Lucy Green. Lucy is um, a solar scientist. She's a solar scientist and a fabulous broadcaster. Uh, so um, she seemed like a sort of a natural progression because she's out there inspiring everybody to sort of uh, see the, uh, our local star in a different way and so much more besides. So yes, she was a natural progression and uh, yeah, a fantastic communicator. The year when you were awarded your, your Suffrage Science Award, it was 2013, and we always have you know, a discussion, a panel discussion at the events. And the theme was, would Nobel Prize winning physicist Marie Curie have made it as a woman in science today? So I'm, I'm intrigued with that because there's a bit of me that thinks it's like, yeah, you know, maybe the physical sciences still do have a, a bit of a problem. But I think, you know, she might well have done it. But then we're still hearing these conversations about particularly women of colour coming through in science. So I, I do wonder if the question would be like, if Marie Curie had been black, would she have made it in science today? I don't know where, 
what you think about that. Well, I think the very fact she made it in science at the time, I mean, she won two Nobel Prizes. And I remember um, there was a film called Radioactive that came out about her life um, sort of quite recently. And she was a determined woman. I think she would have definitely made it. I don't think much would have stood in her way. And so I think being black or female, I don't think that would have stopped her. Because from the film and from what I've heard about her, she was about the science. She had a passion for understanding. And I think that's the sort of thing that can transcend the barriers. So I think she would have definitely made it today. <laughs> but then for people maybe with less of the absolute, you know, dogged <laughs> determination to give themselves radiation poisoning. Yes. Um, do you think some of these barriers are still there for, for women in science and for, for women of colour in science? Yes. Unfortunately, I think there are still some barriers there. And the barriers are twofold, though. Um, I think in the past, there were people saying, oh, you're, you're black and female, you can't do science. So there was sort of the external. But I think one of the biggest challenges we face today is almost the internal barriers. And the internal barriers are set up by society. When my daughter was growing up, my daughter's sort of 10 years old now, soon to be 11. But when she was growing up, I'd go to sort of uh, shops and sort of uh, look at toys and there'll be boys' toys, you know, sort of Meccano, engineering and girls' toys, light and fluffy. And we still have this divide. Whereas many boys like fluffy toys and many girls like engineering toys. We should be talking about individuals and not about gender disaggregation like that. And I think while that still exists, and it's getting better, but while that still exists, we're going to get this polarisation. So I think over the past 14 years, I've spoken to about 350,000 sort of kids, adults as well, but sort of mainly kids. And uh, girls have come up to me and said, well, you know, girls don't do physics. And oh, um, if I do physics, I can only become a physics teacher. Uh, and so it, it's sort of, a, oh, oh, there've been no sort of great female scientists before. It's sort of showing them the amazing heritage that we have. So, and I think these set up internal barriers. So girls just sort of saying, I can't do that. So that's what I like to do, sort of try and get down to the sort of uh, the stereotypes for sort of black people, but also for sort of uh, girls as well. I'd really love to see, you know, more characters in films, in books, like who are scientists and almost like it's irrelevant, you know, to their thing. Because that's the sort of the archetype of like Ross in Friends, who I think was a paleontologist or something like that. It's like, that's just his job and it's irrelevant. But like, science is a job that people do. We're not like weird boffins and <laughs> spend all day being passionate in the lab about these things. It's like, yeah, that could, that can be some of it. But like, it's a job <laughs> to some it's, extent. It's funny because I've, I've been campaigning for a while to get a space scientist on EastEnders. It's just the character that's important. They happen to be a space scientist. You know, um, how was your day? Well, yeah, rough day at the lab. But and so, so it's just in passing. But to, yeah, as you say, to show scientists as everyday people, because I think people do see us as boffins or sort of, you know, in our ivory towers or not connected with society. And I think quite a bit has been done to sort of break down those barriers. I so say just like Brian Cox, you know, standing on a mountain and being passionate about science, sort of showing his uh, enthusiasm about science. I think those things show that we are part of society. We love our work and we're not sort of uh, distinct from society. And that's, I think, been a, um, a strong idea for quite some time. Scientists are people too. <laughs> yes, we should make T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. Regular normal scientist person. <laughs> It's clear that you've just been a, an incredibly busy person all, all your life. How have you managed to fit it all together and, and you know, and, and having a child as well and doing all the outreach you do, doing the research you do? How, how have you made it work? I, I think I like being busy. I, I get a bit twitchy if I'm not. And it's quite interesting because um, with the uh, lockdowns, uh, I was thinking I, I spent most of my time going out and giving talks and lectures to people and filming. And with the first lockdown, that 
looked as if it was all going to come to an end. And so I, I, I got a clarinet because I used to play the clarinet. So I, I bought a piano for um, our home. I thought, OK, yeah, this is the time to sort of do some of the things that I've been wanting to do. And it was the total opposite. It's been so busy. <laughs> But I do, I do love that. I mean, with the sky at night, we were filming at home, which was amazing fun, challenging but good fun, and also sort of um, the technology, um, sort of doing sort of talks um, over the internet. That has been more successful than I thought it would be. The, sometimes I do feel overwhelmed. I've been sitting on a government committee, a government commission, the Commission for uh, Race and Ethnic Disparity, and so that has sort of you know, swept through my life over lockdown and sort of taken over a lot. And of course, um, I. I think like with many people, sort of getting the work-life balance with homeschooling as well, it was quite challenging. One of the things we would do is each of us would sort of go to our computer. My daughter would do her homeschooling. My husband would be having Zoom calls and I'll be sort of doing various other things. And then at the end of the day, we'd come down and sort of uh, um, eat together and then sort of go out outside if it was a clear night and do some stargazing just for, uh, just for something that could bring us together. So I think uh, like many, uh, keeping that balance is quite hard and it's exciting when sort of new work comes in. But at the same time, there's sort of also penalties in terms of, OK, I still haven't done the washing up. <laughs> so it's a juggling act. So you, you are the commissioner for the new commission on race and ethnic disparities. So what are the kinds of things that you've been looking at there? Because it does feel like there are conversations now that are happening that really probably should have happened some time ago, but have become unavoidable now. Yes, I think um, the Black Lives Matter disturbances uh, that happened in July really sort of culminated things. So I, I think it had brought things into a focus. And it's been fascinating because um, we've been very much data led, looking at the data, seeing where the disparities are. And, and of course, many disparities are sort of a multifaceted. It's not just one variable that affects uh, people's lives. It's a, mul- a number of variables. And so it's trying to sort of assess that, look at the variables and work out where they're there is a residual and if there is a residual which seems to be race related what can we do about that so it's been a very interesting journey speaking to all sorts of different people but trying to get to sort of the bottom of of, of, of where the UK is at the moment Uh, but it's quite encouraging because the data is in in many places quite positive so uh, that works well (laughs) and it's you know ironically we're, we're talking over zoom you know we've all been locked down for a year pretty much now but we've seen through the pandemic the impact that it's had on particularly black and minority ethnic communities and it's like we there still feels like there's some really knotty problems that we need to get to grips with you know not not just talking about diversity in science but like just talking about the whole of society still seems to have these challenges yes we talk about sort of raising uh, the tide for everyone Good teaching works for everyone. And so it is trying to work out. And often with sort of people from ethnic minorities, they can sometimes be in sort of the lowest socioeconomic sort of uh, categories. And so how do we rise the tides for everyone? But at the same time, sort of white working class people might be in that same sort of category. And I think often solutions are universal solutions. We need to make the less affluent part of society better able you know, through schooling, through, through opportunity. And so I think that's one of the focuses. I guess in many places in your career, you've been sort of the the first woman, first black person, particularly first black woman, to be in some of the positions that you've had. And talking to many of the other women through the podcast, it's like sometimes you feel like you are the only woman in the room and it would just be nice if there were a couple more people here and we could have, you know, we could just change the norms of 
what this is is like. So are there there times in your career where you've really felt like I am just the only person like this here and and it's it's caused sort of friction or, or problems? There's been a few examples where I've sort of turned up somewhere and it's the stereotype. They've seen a black woman. I remember going up to uh, one of my contractors' offices and I turned up at the security gate and the guy sort of gave me a... Uh, I wasn't um, long out of university and I was sort of wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase and feeling quite... Ew. Fancy. <laughs> yeah, it's quite grown up now. And, um, and he said, uh, here are the keys, love. You need to start cleaning the offices at the back. Because he saw a black woman and he assumed, point blank... A black woman must be here to clean. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a cleaner, but it's the assumption. And so that's the that's the challenge is taking on that um, that stereotype, sort of trying to break those barriers. Yeah. And it's also how do you handle that? Because you can come in guns blazing. How dare you? What are you doing? But then what does that say about me? <laughs> So uh, well, I generally try and sort of break them in gently. Well, actually, I'm here to um, see um, some of my contractors and ass- assess their work. Um, so could you phone so-and-so up because um, uh, he's expecting me? Because I think that's probably a better way to sort of change the stereotype. If you shout and scream, then um, also they, they, they're on the defensive. It, it's sort of, oh, my goodness, you know, these black women, they come in and they start shouting at me. Whereas if you sort of, you know, sort of kind, gentle, uh, but try and steer them in the right direction, I think that is sort of a better way of doing it. And as well, I guess some of it is like when you feel there's there's a culture that maybe you don't belong in as well yeah and I have had that a few times where it sort of it feels like a bit like a boys club and I'm sort of the intruder you know you wonder what they say uh, not about me but just say when I'm not there it's almost as if I'm the third wheel and I, I remember um, when I started off at the MAD sometimes there'd be sort of you know um, racy pictures on the wall and if you're sitting opposite your boss and trying to have a conversation with your sort of semi-clad women on the wall, it puts you at a disadvantage. And I see a lot less of that now. And so um, there has been a, sort of a, quite an evolution in the past 20 years. But it's just sort of the, the mentality that no one noticed that that was a problem. <laughs> or perhaps they did and that's why it's changed. But um, I think, yes, you can be, I sometimes feel like an infiltrator. I didn't quite belong. You know, oh, yes, Maggie, yeah, she's a scientist. But yeah, um, when she's going, oh yeah, now we can really talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and things that might not have been going on at all. Because, and that's sometimes the problem, it's the supposition that I'm in the way. <laughs> And then kind of thinking about the next generation, all the the girls that you go and talk to at school, what are your hopes for the next generation of of women coming up and, and maybe going into space science? One of the things that I do when I go out to schools is I speak to everyone. Um, sometimes people want me to speak to the gifted and talented, you know, the people who are most likely to become scientists. I want to get everybody fired up about science. But I do target my talk to engage with girls who might not consider careers in science. What my goal is, I want them to aim high. So have a crazy dream just like I have. It doesn't matter what it is, but know that they're so much more capable than sometimes people give them credit for, or sometimes they even know themselves. So I want them to be reaching high. I also, I also I want to give them a sort of a wide range of options so science might not be for them and that's fine but know that there's something out there for them and that they don't have to narrow down their field of view because they think oh women go into these subjects women can go into any subjects and thrive so it's just sort of trying to lay out more options so I think these are the two key uh, messages I like to get out there. And finally, bringing it all kind of back to where you started, your passion has always been space and going into space. Do you do you think you're going to get there? I mean, I'm watching like the SpaceX launches and, and things like that. And it's it's suddenly feeling quite 
tangible that maybe in my lifetime we'll see, you know, certainly see people go back to the moon, maybe see people on Mars. Do you, do you reckon you're, you're going to get up there? It, it has been the crazy dream of my life. And I don't know, I see at the moment there's two things going on. Well, there's a, a Japanese um, philanthropist, so I can't say that word, but, and he is uh, offering to take a group of eight people uh, on uh, one of Elon Musk's uh, spacecraft to fly around the moon and back. So that's a competition that's out there at the moment. And I've got to apply. I can't help it. I'm a, I am a self-certified lunatic. I love the moon. And I was inspired by the moon landing. So I've got to sign up for that. Also, about every 15 years, the European Space Agency will open up um, the astronaut corps and say, OK, we're looking for new astronauts. And they just about did that again recently. Now, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not very fit. In fact, I'm going through a fitness regime to try and... <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm, I'm, you're going to jog to yeah, Mars. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of out of the age group, and I'm not as fit as I should be. But I've still got to apply because it's the crazy dream that drives you on. But as you say, it is uh, an exciting time in terms of commercial space. So there is a sort of the traditional route of going you know, sort of through countries, NASA and the European Space Agency. But at the same time, so I like to call it the battle of the billionaires, where guys who sort of grew up with the excitement of um, the moon landings and stuff like that. They're looking to put their money uh, into space. And so I'm hoping that within my lifetime, uh, one of my crazy ideas is to retire to Mars. So, yeah, when I'm 80 and so, you know, <laughs> a bit doddery, there's less gravity on Mars. So, <laughs> and think of the experiments you could do when you have a whole planet to explore. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a retirement plan now, but um, I'm still optimistic. I can't help it. <laughs> Thanks very much to Maggie Adair and Pocock. Next time, I'll be speaking with computer scientist Karen Shankland about what computer programming used to be like not that long ago. You really learn something about the tools that you've got in front of you. And I remember buying the computer magazines and typing in the programs and you had to type it all in and then you would record it on a tape because it would record all the ones and it took ages to record the ones and zeros onto the tape uh, in audio so that it could then read them back. It was crazy. And before we go, here's a final word from Gaty Hussein about her hopes for the future. I'd like there to be much more readily available and consistently available support for early career scientists for the needs that they have in terms of childcare, in terms of maternity leave, paternity leave, and also leave for looking after families and when people are ill, which of course is very relevant at the moment. I find that the consistency of coverage across different institutes, even in the same country, can vary so wildly that it leads to a lot of insecurity for people at that stage of their career. And that is completely undesirable and makes it difficult for many people to stay in. So I think that's the one area which I would like to see there being significant movement on in the next years. The Suffrage Science Podcast, How Women Are Changing Science, is presented by me, Katani, with audio production by Georgia Mills. It's produced by First Create the Media for the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences Suffrage Science Scheme. Find out more and read profiles of previous awardees at suffragescience.org. And follow at MRC underscore LMS on Twitter and the hashtag Suffrage Science for all the latest news. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.